Welcome to this special five-star wines and wine without walls series on wine, food and travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. For the next weeks, we will be focusing on a dozen trophy-winning wineries from the competitions that took place in Verona at the start of Vinitali in early April. The winning wines are without doubt some of the very best that Italy has to offer. What I'm most interested in discovering are the stories behind the bottles, learning about the wines themselves, of course, and also about the people who make them, where they're from, what they eat, how they live. It's a fascinating journey that will take us all across Italy, and I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Michael Garner, wine writer, judge, consultant and importer. Michael is the acclaimed co-author of Barolo, Tar and Roses, which came out in 1990. And his second book, Amarone and the Fine Wines of Verona, in 2017. Michael is also the co-owner of Italian wine specialist Trio Wines with business partner Paul Merritt. And actually, like me, Michael lives and works in beautiful Devon, which is something of a surprising coincidence. Good morning, Michael. It's a beautiful day down here on the ex estuary. How is it with you today? Tell us where you are. It's just the same. I live in mid-Devon. Um... Not all that far from Dartmoor, and we have a glorious clear blue sky. Um, I'm sitting with my office door open, enjoying the temperatures, and yeah, it's a great place to be when the weather's good, definitely. It's so so peaceful and so beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I've been here for over 40 years in Topsham, and uh, you know, when, like you, I go away often, and it's just always a nice place to come back to. Oh, isn't it just I can never another way? I mean, particularly when I go up to London, I just can't wait to get out of the city and back to the peace and quiet of rural Devon because I, I live right. in a tiny little village uh, miles from anywhere, really. Um, only 25 houses here, and so I'm used to uh, very tranquil circumstances. Oh, that's nice, that's very yeah, nice, right. a very yeah. peaceful environment, yeah. Yeah. Now, Michael, in addition to writing about wine and selling wine, you're often a judge in important competitions. Mm-hmm. For for example, for Decanter magazine, yeah. uh, and you've been a judge at Five Star Wines at Vinitali. Correct. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you um, generally, for both wine producers and for we consumers, uh, how important are such wine competitions? That's a really good question. Uh, people seem to set uh, great store by them. And I, I can understand why that should be the case. Um, producers want recognition for their wines. And that recognition often will come in the form of hopefully some sort of a claim from um, so-called wine experts and pundits. The consumer also looks to the array of medals that a wine picks up or the scores it may achieve in some magazine as a, as an indication of uh, quality and value often. So um, I think, yes, these things have their place, certainly. And they're also great fun to take part in from a personal point of view. I, I really enjoy them. And I often think they're very good uh, forums for uh, an exchange of views, which is uh, so important in our trade to know what other people think of wines and to be able to express and exchange your own opinions with other like-minded people so they're, they're great they're, they're a great venue for for that sort of thing yeah i i agree i think uh 
particularly when consumers can do more than just go on a numerical score, but actually read a description of why a wine or has been um, given a, a particular score or accolade. I've been interviewing the winners of this year's five-star wines and wine without walls competition mm-hmm. to try to get the story behind the bottles, you know, sure, sure. so it's more than just, um, uh, as I say, a score. You've yeah. actually judged at five-star wines if you need to leave. Why is this an important competition? I've not done it for uh, a few years. I was supposed to this year, but unfortunately, I got food poisoning just before the uh, oh, what a shame! Before the competition, so I had to craft at the last moment. Prior to that, obviously, the pandemic had uh, prevented me from going over. It's a competition I particularly like um, f- uh, for the, the 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 one of the main reasons is uh, the way that panels are, uh, const- uh, are put together for five-star wines. Because on one panel, panel, you've got, say, a journalist like Adolf, you've got a winemaker, you've got a sommelier, and someone else. So you've got a really good mix of opinions. Uh, and that, I think, is, is great because they uh, are very good. They organize panels in that way. So I, I really like tasting for five-star wines. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. And, uh, of course, you know, you get to meet judges from different countries uh, with different cultures and uh, see how their their reactions to wine can differ from your own um so again a great place to exchange values yes actually i can recall judging myself at the banco d'assaggio in torgiano many many years ago ago and again it was that same sort of mix you know i was an international judge but the italian point of view of what they looked for in wines and then a winemaker could identify faults or virtues that perhaps i was less aware of so that technical side so i think five stars does that same thing They've really nailed it from that point of view because you get the point of view of a sommelier as well, whose point of view is rather different from mine. Um, Absolutely. He's looking first and foremost at what food this wine will go with, etc., what you can serve it with, whereas I'd be looking for more for other issues. The winemaker, as you say, would be uh, looking at another aspect of it. So you get a, a 360 view uh, yeah. for, wines, uh, for five-star wines, which is, uh, I think, a good uh, recommendation for the consumer in particular. Yeah. Sure. one that's been looked at from every angle. Michael, I know you as an author. Um, you were writing your book around the same time I was writing The Wine Roads of Italy. Apparently, and I remember, yeah. I remember Barolo, Tar and Roses, published in 1990. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, let's just turn back the clock a bit because such a well-known area as Le Langhe and the Barolo wine hills, you know, we're one of the great areas of Italy now. 30 years ago, it wasn't yet uh, as recognized as a nowhere, as... nowhere near, Mark. Um, it was still an area. I've always believed that it's always produced great wines, always. Um, but back then, the British trade press used to slate Barolo, something terrible. And I just, I, uh, I, I leapt to the defense of an underdog in like classic sort of English manner. You know, I, I needed a cause and, and, and there it was. Barolo, I thought, was a, a fantastic cause because I, I remember the sort of the, 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 the genesis of the idea, if you like, Mark, was um, my first trip to Piemonte, which must have happened close on 40 years ago, uh, at a time when Barolo was not highly regarded 
And I remember one incident in particular, being in uh, the cellars of uh, Giovanni Contano's uh, winery, before they moved to where they are now, but the old one back at uh, San Giacomo. Uh, and I tasted Monfortino, 71, straight from the back. Iconic barrel. wine. And I just couldn't believe how good it was. And the no one else was really recognizing how good it was, apart from a few people. But in in the UK, these wines were not highly regarded as at all. So I thought, I've got to I've got to tell the world about these wines, you know. Well, quite, and and you're right. It was um, great wines were being produced, but they weren't fetching the prices. That's say, true. The great Burgundies, and I sure. I remember meeting producers around that same era as well. Bruno Ceretto, for example, mm-hmm. who was very eager that you know the wines would gain a recognition and it's partly through books such as yours and through some and and wine importers that have really helped to spread that word now it's interesting you mentioned the monfortino because there was also that was also a time when there was a transition between tradition and more modern styles uh, with conterna of course fiercely being in the capello sommerso he certainly was yeah yeah yeah. so Um, you were able to sort of give an overview of this exciting moment of transition which is still you know in place and there's still traditionalists still more modern styles that's absolutely the case so it was a really exciting time and uh it was it was perfect timing um and that was sheer coincidence you know i didn't (laughs) recognize the full implications of it back then i just wanted to sort of um as i said get the message out there to the world that here was a great wine that was not being uh uh viewed as as uh as such and that was as you rightly say sort of at the time sort of selling for peanuts for uh, in terms of its true worth so yeah that mix of um the old school and then we got quite close to uh some of the modernist back then people like Roberto Boetio Elio Altare um and at the same time we spent lots of I spent a lot of time with Giacomo uh, Giovanni rather Giovanni Caterno um Bartolo Mascarello even um Beppe Rinaldi's father um who was uh, eight, quite old back then but I remember him as well I remember spending some time with him and there were these fascinating differences in the style the old traditional style and the uh, modern style and for me it's interesting to note that the most prized style these days has gone back towards the very traditional um, yeah yeah you know, if you think of someone like um a producer like castello di verduno uh mm-hmm. is, is that right no no gbid bollotto commendatore bollotto and uh, then monvigliero is just made by from foot trodden grapes uh, oh my goodness in, wow in the old way uh yeah that's one of the barrels that ha- fetches the highest price as monfortino does because sure roberto Contano has followed in his father's footsteps and maintains the maintain classical that. old style production method so it's yeah. interesting to see that tastes have uh gone back towards that sort of uh, yes into the big botte aging and yeah yeah uh, absolutely um, using yeah. the indigenous yeast as well Totally, totally. Yeah. Actually, the landscape itself, though, in those 40 years, Michael, has really changed. I remember that, you know, we didn't have such incredibly intensive viticulture. The Barolo, the Longe Hills were still, you know, mixed farms because people couldn't make yeah. a huge living. And so the small growers had to grow a bit of this and a bit of that, of as course. well as some vines to sell, the grapes that's, to sell. That's very true. I remember talking to, who's a guy? Yeah. Um, Enrico Scavino, 
you know, the guy who makes Brick Del Fiasque, etc. We spent a bit of time with him, and uh, I remember actually sort of um, helping him harvest the, the 1987 vintage Paul and I were there for that. And he had to sort of fit it in between harvesting peaches and harvesting his other sure. uh, yeah. uh, other fruits. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh, mixed farming back there, and it's almost become a monoculture now in the area. Uh, there are vines everywhere you look, whereas at one time, they would have been planted only in the top quality sites, although the yeah, sites yeah. were always there for vines. And the expansion of the vineyards has seen some sites included, which perhaps once upon a time would not have been considered as part sure. of vineyard yeah. areas. So there is that. There, that's, you have to bear that sort of thing in mind. It's an sure. inevitable consequence of the success. Of the, course, of course. Employed, yeah. I'm wondering if one of the attractions to you of being in this beautiful area has been the food as well. Is that a is that a big part of your life? I love the foods of Lelange and going to Barolo and yeah. being with wine producers and eating foods that are so in tune with the landscape. Absolutely, totally. But I think, again, um, I'm sure you'd agree, Mother, that's changed a lot. Um, when Paul and I first started researching the book back in the sort of mid-80s, um, you had these huge, great meals with course after course after course uh, and the cooking style in uh, in the lange has evolved in that period it's become much lighter um because people's habits and lifestyles change um i remember talking to people about one of their for breakfast they'd go down to the local uh local village square and they'd have mugs of tripe soup and glasses <laughs> of dolcetto for breakfast right. Because they needed all those calories because they were out there farming all day long. And, you know, the, the lifestyle governed um, was governed by the, uh, the, the work that they have to do, hard physical labor. Uh, and that has changed now, obviously, um, because it's uh, because of monoculture, uh, because the spread of vineyards and, and uh, things are, are organized very differently now. And there's a much sort of lighter approach to uh, Langarola cuisine. It's, it's done with a, a lighter hand than it used to. Um, so it's changed, but it's still as, as interesting as ever. Yeah, I can never separate food and wine. Can't. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a mistake to do so. One makes the other taste better, and that's as far as it goes. So, yeah, they go hand in hand. So, it's great to see local wines and uh, the and local cuisines and how they blend together. And how sure, they yeah, it's sure. one of the more fascinating aspects. It that. is, it is, and as you say, I think it's absolutely essential with Italian wine, perhaps even more than wines from other countries. You know, Italian wines are food wines, and that's how Italians drink them. Yeah, yeah, they, they are a part of the fabric of their everyday lives just as much as food is, uh, and they're inseparable. And I, I think, you know, it's things are changing now, I hope they are, but for a long time, um, a lot of wine in the UK was drunk outside of mealtimes. I think it still is. And the Italians have never been able to get their head around this, you know. Uh, and in a way, they're right. I mean, I can think of better aperitifs than wine. And there are better things at slaking your thirst than wine. Wine is in Italy is there to go with the meal. Absolutely. That's it. 
Absolutely. Uh, I think that's seeing wine in its true context, really. I mean, it lends itself quite well to, you know, consumption as an aperitif or just as a casual sort of social beverage. But when it does, uh, when it enters that area, uh, that, that area, it's competing with all sorts of other drinks. And of course. Spirits a lot. So it's got a specific focus in Italy. And I, I, that's one of the things I love about Italy, the way that uh, these things are, are, are viewed. Yeah. And of course, the regionality of Italy as well, the way how you move from, I mean, the difference between their different dishes in Asti than in Alba. But yeah. when you moved across to Verona for your second book, again, it's, uh, it, it was not only a completely different style of wine, Amarone and, and the great wines of the Valpolicella, uh, but also a whole different landscape, a different world, a different cuisine. So, Absolutely. Again, very much a time of change, though. You know, if we think of, well, you mentioned Amarone, um, a lot of people perhaps don't recognise the fact that Amarone is uh, a wine with a history dating back no further than the uh, end of the Second World War. So, you know, some 60, 70 years ago, really. Uh, and it's only recently, I would say, in the last couple of decades that it's exploded in the way it has done commercially. Uh, and that tends to take away, I think, from um, the, the the main focus of the vineyards of Valpolicella, which is Valpolicella itself. Sure, uh, the wonderful wine. It's my one of the, it's my probably my, I think I've gone on record as saying it's my desert island wine. A really good glass of Valpolicella yeah. as an everyday beverage is sure. unbeatable for me. It's so adaptable, so versatile. And again, it's uh, it's from a very particular landscape. Um, the way the vineyards of Verona are organised, you know, they're all these north-south running valleys from the Lesser yeah. Mountains down towards the uh, Adige, the plain of the Adige. They've all got fairly similar growing conditions, and it produces a, a really interesting style of wine, wines that are very uh, perfect food wines that are quite sort of light and really tasty and really versatile and brilliant everyday drinking. So, yeah. That's one of the aspects I wanted to sort of bring out as much as I could. In there. Yeah. Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Amarone gets a lot of the publicity. Amarone, of course, being a passito wine from, from dried, mm. not fresh grapes, a method that goes back to uh, antiquity. Absolutely. Pre-Roman times. Pre-Roman times, the yeah. Greeks certainly. Uh, and yet, as you say, Amarone itself, as we know it, is a relatively recent very recent in the, in the you know in the greater scheme of things, uh, as I said, really yeah. more than the Second World War. Um it was the there's probably its history dates back a little longer than that, uh, to the I would say um end of the 19th century when people began to um, experiment with a drier style of, of ricotta because ricotta has been around forever. Um, but that was interrupted by a sequence of events. Uh, obviously, the arrival, first of all, of Philoxera, then two world wars, um, sort of, you know, um, obviously brought an end to that experimentation. It was only after the end of the Second World War that people sort of took up the... Um, took up the baton again, if you like, and and, uh, and started experimenting around with what you could do with um, se- uh, wine from semi-dried grapes that was fermented up to full dryness. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we have the ricciotto the, from the recce, the, the ear of the bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, as you say, that's the sweeter style with residual sweetness staying. 
to create a dry style, was that partly a question of a yeast that was strong enough to survive? Um, that, that's a very good question because uh, a lot of yeast will sort of uh, stop working um, at certain alcohol levels. But um, if you talk to a lot of people um, who re can remember that far back, they will insist that the uh, idea of Amarone developed as an accident more than anything. Um, a, a barrel of ricotta that had been perhaps neglected and had fermented out to dryness, as right. it, it will yeah. do, obviously. Uh, and there are very particular yeast strains that will sort of carry on operating at up to, say, 16, 16 and a half um, percent alcohol. And the popularity, along with the popularity of amaronic, goes hand in hand with the fact that these particular yeast strains have been developed in order to uh, complete the uh, fermentation of uh, these wines to the sort of alcohol levels we see in Amarone today. Sure, yeah. Well, Michael, let's talk a little bit now about Tria, your wine company, your specialist Italian wine company here in the UK, and also yeah. about the challenges of selling quality Italian wines in the UK market, you know, the challenges of wines that are primarily wines that are great food wines, as we've discussed sure. in, a, you know, in a culture that where wine is often drunk in a different way. Yeah, um, there, there certainly are challenges. Um, Trio wines, um, Paul, uh, Paul Merritt, the guy I wrote the Barola book uh, with, is actually my business partner in Trio wines. Um, we've been going for 20 years now. And our idea was just to try and sort of offer a streamlined service to people. And that idea has sort of evolved over, over the last 20 years to what it is today. Uh, and today, Trio Wines, really, we, we operate in a very sort of particular way. We say we're an ex-seller selling company only, so we don't have stock in the UK. We sell to um, people who are interested and large enough to be able to sort of um, ship themselves sort of, uh, from Italy. We work with a, a small handful of, of producers whose wines we know and love and have come to trust over the years. And so our main customers are, are people like Waitrose. Um, we sell quite a lot of wine to Waitrose and because they're big enough uh, and uh, have systems that are well managed enough to be able to sort of look to ship decent quantities out of Italy. Which, we, which of your wines would be in Waitrose? Um, I might be able to find. You can find them, you can certainly look for them. And um, Well, um, from Verona, for example, um, there's the Waitrose uh, Ripasso, the uh, number one Ripasso that they do, um, which I, I help that, I help out with that. And also their Bardolino from uh, Verona is uh, from a producer that uh, I have a, an association with. And um, funnily enough, Waitrose are just about to launch a new Amarone, their new Amarone. Uh, and that, again, is uh, something I've had a hand in. So, um, Oh, wonderful. I'll look out for those. The Verona, yeah, it's a new label. It's um, it's going to be their kind of uh, their main Amarone, rather than one of the small parcels. The regular Amarone is uh, a wine that I've developed with them over the past uh, year, couple of years because I've been working with this particular producer and waitress for a number of years now. And uh, yeah, things are going really well. And the, uh, we're looking forward to the new Amarone, which will be launched at the end of this month, beginning of August. Oh, so wow. That's exciting. Look out. Yeah. 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 Do you work with restaurants as well? 
No, um, we work with a few distributors too. Uh, of course. Yeah. Um, who, who's what well, they, they buy from us, ex sellers, and will distribute uh, to restaurants. But no, um, we're too small to be able to work with uh, individual restaurants, Mark. So um, yeah. we look to sort of work with distributors who will. So, sure. As I said, yeah. we try and operate, operate a very streamlined system. Have things become more complicated after the dreaded B word Brexit? Oh, well, I, I, yes, uh, the dreaded B word, the awful B word. Um, I hate mentioning that word. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah, of course, things have be, yeah. become a lot more complicated. Um, but everything has been a bit strange recently because of the pandemic. And of course. And things are in flux. And I, I think they're beginning to sort of uh, settle down again now. But the uh, aftermath of, of the dreaded B word is still to be resolved it's still making our lives so much more difficult yeah it's such an unnecessary totally totally unnecessary don't get me started, don't yeah. get me started. or me or me <laughs> we'll leave it at that yeah, now fi yeah. finally michael i just want to since yeah. we're both here in devon i just want to touch on english wine and in particular devon wines and uh what you think of uh some of the you know there's been an amazing uh amount of vineyards planted just here in Devon sure. uh, with some surprising uh, results. Yeah, both Devon and, and Cornwall, obviously, as well. as a, a lot happening down there in the West Country and all along the South Coast. And yeah, there have been some, uh, there's some tremendous wines uh, available now, not just the sparkling ones. And we have the reputation for that now because um, there's a bit of a track record there. And we've been producing really good, um, what I suppose we should refer to as champagne method wines in the South of England for a number of years that have been getting rave reviews. But there are some really good still white now uh and um yeah i think good prospects for reds uh, i think we were probably capable of making some really good pinot noir down here for example so that's something to look forward to but it's still uh, an industry in its infancy but um with tremendous prospects um as long as the um climate change that is facilitating that doesn't accelerate too rapidly which you know could be a worry a bit further down the line Sure, I know it's a worry already for many Italian producers. Of course, it's a yeah. huge worry. Um, yeah. And I'm not, yeah, it's it's very serious. It's quite grave in my, uh, yeah. in my view. That's yeah. what a, it's a bit of a sad note to end on this, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's end on a happy note. I mean, yeah. I hope I, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to meet you in this way, Michael. You know, we're not very far apart. And I think the next time we meet must definitely be over a glass of wine. I'll hold you to that, Mark, and hope that it happens very soon. Yeah, let's hope and try to make it happen soon. Okay, okay. let's do that. Thank you Thanks. very much uh, for being my guest today. It's been a real pleasure, and we'll see you soon. I hope so. The pleasure's all mine, Mark. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this special Five Star Wines and Wine Without Walls series that highlights the trophy-winning wineries and the stories behind their bottles. We hope you will join me again next week for another installment. Hi, guys. 
guys, I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.